0: This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. I'm talking to Beatrice Hitchman about her new novel, it's new in America, called All of You, Every Single One. How are you, Beatrice? It's nice to have you here.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to be here, yeah, and um, lovely to meet you as well, David.
0: Yeah. Well, I know this is not a new novel for you because you're in England, and the book was published there in August of 2021. but it's new for America, so it's nice to make your acquaintance. I read the book and was really struck by your, I, I think, by the kind of carefulness and quietness of your narrative. Your, you know, descriptions are of well. The book takes place in in mostly in Vienna. I should say that, and the time frame is nineteen ten to begin with and kind of ends it ends in 1946. But I think the core of the book takes place between 1913 and 1938. Um, and that's really where most of the narrative action is. Although I had, I went back and reread the first two pages after I read the book because the opening of the book is not quiet. And I was really struck by the, um, you know, a sort of dissonance and obviously purposeful on your part. Um, you know, the book does not, it's sort of elusive in a way, because when you start, you, you're telling immediately it's about the stealing of a child. But once you start reading the book, you completely forget that that was introduced to you. I mean, I did, I had to go back and remember that you kind of presaged everything and that's a a a device you obviously did on purpose and i wanted to ask you about that
1: oh thank you well that's just i mean what a joy to be read with such care and attention thank you so much yeah these are fantastic um really interesting things for me to think about and reflect on as well um yeah so i suppose that i mean uh, in some ways, yes, there are some quiet aspects to the novel. So I think of it as a book that really celebrates domesticity and the idea of long relationships, um, lifelong relationships, in fact. And so in a sense, it doesn't necessarily have that pizzazz of a story about an, an elopement or a coming out story. And so perhaps I was aware that there was something that needed to happen to get readers kind of over the bump of the first 50 pages. And if that was trailing a lure of something quite noisy and splashy that happens in the middle of the book, then, although it felt like a bit of a cheap trick in some ways, you know, that's, that's kind of the price you pay. I suppose I always go back to authors like, you know, when I'm thinking about frame stories of that kind where you get the scene dropped in as a prologue, which you know tells you what's going to happen essentially and then hopefully as you say you forget <laughs> and it just comes up again as a surprise in the middle so I always think of um, Donna Tart. I mean I'm always thinking about Donatart <laughs> and, and her kind of expertise but I'm thinking about the opening of The Secret History which we um, often teach to students as a kind of exemplar of how to get people into your novel. Mm. In a very beautiful, intricate way, but one which does say, you know, there is peril coming, you know, don't switch off because this now seems a bit quiet and it's about these characters going about their lives. So, yeah, yes, it's a really interesting contrast between that splashy opener and then perhaps going into that more painstaking um, analysis of what people do, you know, what they're like.
0: Well, and what you were doing, you know, the the story without certainly do not want to give away too much of your story, but it is about. Initially, um, a couple, uh, you know, in in an unusual couple because they're gay in 1910, Mm. um, where we don't, you know, we kind of don't really understand what it was like and what it could have been like for people who were um, oriented differently than the norm Mm. for uh, Victorian culture, Edwardian culture at that time, you know, kind of repressed and uh, and of course, it's great that you brought Freud into the book because you know that's kind of emblematic of the modern um, uh, emergence of cycle of of kind of self awareness of and um, it, and the trying to um, uh, counter repression. But we also know that. Um, There has been, you know, every kind of human behavior that has ever existed has always existed. There's nothing new, that it's not like suddenly in the 20th century, gayness was discovered. Um, You know, that's ridiculous. But, there, you know, there's this sense of, because it was hidden and it wasn't accepted um, to to be, and I love the word that you used, it stands out from that period, the invert. you know, that's a really interesting term, mm. uh, but was used commonly. Mm. And it, you know, it's just sort of, st- it struck me that um, you were trying to inhabit those people as a way of restoring their um, uh, authenticity, their credibility as human beings, even though we don't know them, but you kind of place them as people we could recognize, you know, today. I really I like the you know the all the plays of ambiguity about you know sexuality and, and appearance, mm-hmm. um, whether it's the two women at the beginning, Eve, Eva and Juliet, mm-hmm. or Rolf and Anders, you know your all of your characters are um, fluid in their identification. like in fact, even the one of the key characters, Frau Bernd, mm-hmm. um, I don't think it's clear at all that she's Jewish until much later, then you've introduced her. So there's always every single person is in the book is a kind of cipher with multiple uh, um, identities mm-hmm. uh, or multiple prismatic views of their identities, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think obviously you did that on purpose too.
1: Mm. Oh, well, I'd love to say it's all, it's all on purpose. It's all part <laughs> of a huge master plan, but thank you. Yeah, and again, that's really... Um, it's so interesting to talk to people about the book because you learn so much about what you've what you've written and how it's how whether it's worked how much it's worked. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly um, to think about constructing those characters. You know, um, uh, thinking about Eve, who is, as you've said. Um, same sex attracted but masculine presenting a masculine presenting woman but perhaps today might be considered potentially transgender you know but the, the the challenge was to kind of um convey that subjectivity in a time when she wouldn't have understood herself in the same way that we do today so you're writing a book for an audience of today but trying right. to convey that weirdness that flavor of the past and yeah I'm really interested in that that um Descript or invert. As you've said, it's everywhere in the contemporary sexological literature of the time, through which possibly these people might have understood themselves, although it's a bit of a stretch to think they would have had access to, you know, all of this literature and Kraft and all the, the early um, sexological studies. And Freud's work was just beginning to be widely known. So that would have been another route to understanding. Um, there's that amazing line. I don't know if you know Brideshead Revisited. At all well.
0: I do. I haven't read it in a long, long
1: time. <laughs> well, likewise, but there's that wonderful bit where one of the characters sort of says, I don't know, he's about to be gay bashed, really. I don't know if that's a US expression, but he's about to be beaten up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, Oh, an invert I may be, but a pervert I am not. And I i remember reading that at a very formative age and thinking, Aha, that's how to think of it. And that's how to separate those two identities out. So I've always had a real fondness for that. Um, way of describing someone but it's very quaint and kind of archaic uh but it definitely does a lot of work in in the book yeah and that fluidity is really important you know um particularly when it comes to things like ideas of jewishness cultural jewishness you know how we how we think about that not as an absolute term
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and you place the um, the main characters or all of the characters live in, uh, and I'm probably I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, but this <laughs> part of Vienna called Leopoldstadt, Perfect. which mm-hmm. is the Jewish quarter at that time, mm-hmm. and I think it it is fitting, you know, in a kind of Aryan culture to put Jews and homosexuals together, um, and performers, you know, all of the people that were outsiders who were creatives, others in the outside of the kind of um, middle-class or upper-class or pretentiously upper-class um, characters that exist around them. And they kind of, you know, like many Jews in Germany and Austria at that time, they had to become Members of society in a, in acculturated Jewishness, mm. or acculturated even in their in gayness, you know, to be able mm. to pass essentially, mm. but not really in and to be you know, and that's where the tension of later in the book arises, mm. of course, because it's 1938. Or, well, the 1930s, and I did a little reading on Austria mm. during the Nazi period. I had forgotten how anti-Semitic and how brutally um pro-german so much of austria was and so early and that it wasn't just that austria was annexed mm-hmm. by the germans they welcomed i mean mm-hmm. not, again it's not they is not an absolute it's not mm-hmm. every austrian was an anti-semite and not every austrian wanted to be part of the greater germanic empire mm-hmm. but a pr- majority at some point did
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, the Austrians were brutal. They were worse than the Germans in some mm. cases.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. I was reading something quite recently, which I, I must have done when I was researching the book, but then couldn't remember, which really, you know, I do think there is a kind of Austrian victim narrative of, oh, we were invaded along with the rest of everything that Hitler tried to take. And, you know, actually a lot of policies around what was gruesomely called the re of property. So obviously after the Anschluss in 1938, um huge amounts of jewish property were 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 seized um and actually often that was used as a model in germany itself as how how are yeah. we going to do this or look at how those guys are doing it in vienna yeah you know i mean unbelievable just unbelievable
0: well what's terrifying about it is because we live in a world that has an analogous comparison to that period. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I know that people, some people react negatively to the idea that we could compare anything about the modern world to what happened in mm-hmm. Nazi Germany or Austria, but I think that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, because it went so quickly from um, acceptance to rejection of the other or from uh, a kind of a a society of of democracy and acceptance, a a certain amount of diversity, you know, limited Mm. ultimately, but still a diverse and and intellectually curious uh, country. Mm. Uh, Austria was, and Vienna was the heart of it. Um, Well-educated, you know, with incredible culture, going back hundreds of years, um, heart of the Enlightenment, and to go so quickly, literally within 10 years, to switch from being a democratic Diverse and culturally advanced Western society to being, uh, a, you know, essentially um, a, a dictatorship, mm-hmm. an authoritarian, anti-human um, uh, society is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And you realize how humans are um, so capable of that kind of uh, destructiveness. And you, you know, that's part of the book. It's hard not to. Uh, understand that those you know you the people that we started out understanding in this kind of almost crystallized world because you you know you're you are so sympathetic to them they Mm. become people that we accept and understand and then suddenly they're put into this uh, position of fear for their lives Mm. literally for their lives, Mm. Um, and I thought that was a really uh, powerful. Um, uh, portrayal.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's it's so interesting, isn't it? And and thinking about the trajectory of a book, which is something you're not really able to do while you're doing it. But you know, I was very aware that so the first half of the book is the first half of the book, and then there's this hinge halfway through. It's probably not spoiling anything to say, and there is a leap forward in time to 1938, and. In terms of when I was writing that, it was around 2016, 2017. So in the UK, we had Brexit, the catastrophe of Brexit. And we had, you know, we had Trump, of course. um, And uh, the rise of what I viewed as really an essentially a kind of far right sensibility in the UK, certainly. Um, And oh, like you, I guess there's that question of how much we make these comparisons between... mm, movements happening now and movements happening in the past and obviously you're wary of these lazy comparisons but in it was certainly the first time in my life where i felt caught up in potentially something really really scary Mm -hmm. you know because i i'm more of an age now where i can (laughs) reflect and think about these things and it was the first time when i thought oh you you had that sense of the, the the mist rising and the threat level rising um and po- probably that's why I made that decision to kind of follow these characters into that very, very dangerous territory, um, which otherwise I might just have shied away from completely because it just would have felt too brutal, too difficult, you know.
0: Well, you could have. I, I noticed mm. in the reading about your work that you one of the areas you've studied is the endings mm. of books, which I think is really interesting. I remember I took a, a class that was very important to me in fiction writing that was about beginnings as you as, you know you and I talked about that a little bit before we started recording the idea mm-hmm. of how do you start a book mm-hmm. um and um but b- endings are really interesting too and i think endings are much harder in a lot of ways because you have the you don't you know where is the best place mm-hmm. and, and it's not just about where the story ends but where is the book going to end Because, you know, as you sort of said a minute ago, you could have ended 1938. Could have. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't necessarily need to know what happens to those characters. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, well, there's another question for you, you know, like what is it that, what were, what was your purpose in taking them into this, you know, beyond the period of, that sort of destruction of their lives as they knew them to the really the greater conflagration because you do go, you really don't talk about world war II in any detail. Mm -mm. You, you skip over, you go from about like right at the point where it gets bad Mm -hmm. and people are um, in Vienna are beginning to feel the brunt of the, brown shirts mm. and the nazis to you know you give us like a seven year break mm. um and i i thought that i knew that that i th- suspected that you might have felt that that was just more than it would be possible to take on mm. in any book i mean it's a whole other book mm. um mm. and probably has been written about by survivors and people who were there in a way that's so powerful, very difficult to fictionalize.
1: Absolutely. Am, am I Yeah, you're so absolutely I, on the right track there. Yeah. Yeah. Um yes. So there's that question of what fiction can do versus what witness testimonies testimonies are already doing and, and will do more eloquently than than anyone can do. Um yeah. And it, yes, it, there's that always that question of how much is too much to bear and too much for the reader and too much for the book, for any book, right. as you said, yeah. you know, and, and there was beginning to be that sense of compressing five books into one book and <laughs> thinking about what that would look like technically. So the ending, yeah, the ending, there is a, a kind of semi epilogue. And I think had I if I'd had my way <laughs> and been working with the less determined editor, I mean, I think she was right. But initially I sort of said, well, I'm just going to leave them. And I'm mm-hmm. going to leave them in 1938. And I don't think it feels right to go on and say, well, this is what happened to these people. Because the point was that people were disappearing all the time. And it didn't somehow feel honest to say, um, oh, and this happened to this person and have a kind of trite epilogue where we find out what happened and whether it was all right. You know, I kind of felt like one of the best ways to honour the real stories would be to say, we're just going to leave this suspension point here. And that Mm -hmm. is what probably would have happened with these characters. So I felt there was something really rather beautiful about that, but it was put to me by, (laughs) by my editor. And I think she was right, you know, that you cannot ask people to invest for 300 pages and not give them something some sense of a guidance or a futurity and without wanting to ruin the ending for anyone who might be going to read it it i think there's a sense of measure there and you know not hopefully it's not a trite ending hopefully it doesn't read as a kind of shakespearean comedic ending where everything was just all right, because how could it be, you know? So uh, it was a very difficult decision. And we did in the end, go for this kind of smaller final section, which ended without hopefully tying everything in a bow too neatly, which is, but the We're, endings are so yeah. hard, aren't they? I mean, they're the, I think they're yeah. the hardest thing, you know, because there's so many kind of forces in play by that stage that you've just got to try and bring this thing to a halt somehow, you know, it's very tricky.
0: So what do, what is it that you study as a as an academic when you're studying endings do you are you kind of making a top, typology of endings oh, uh is that
1: Yeah I mean that has been done by other scholars who are much more scholarly <laughs> so there's a kind of um there are people working in narratology and more structural narratology thinking about typologies of endings which is an interesting thing I'm more interested in the way in which um, the ending works. So I'm interested in two things. And one thing is um, the way in which cultural meaning comes to be located in the end of the text. So one of the things I'm really interested in Ah, is why do we expect to see this epiphany or this kind of, not moral of the story, but why do we expect the meaning to land land at the end? Why can't it be in the middle? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, what is that about? So that's something I'm interested in currently. Um and the other thing i'm really interested in is the fact that we don't we don't finish the book on the last page of the book you know often there's then acknowledgments or something about the author and then there's the back cover so i'm kind of in- getting interested in the book as a physical artifact and the paratext so that everything around the book and how that relates to the sense of an ending i suppose so i'm interested in the fact that we don't the last page is not really the last page. You know, the last right. page is kind of five pages on with whatever else happens. And, yeah. Ah, but
0: you, now, now you've brought up a really interesting thing because I've been involved in book design and building for a long, long time. Mm. And I realized that, in fact the writer is not usually responsible for that ending, you know, for the wrapper, the structure that goes around the book. That's a, Mm -hmm. either a commercial or a, a design consideration, you know, and we've kind of come to an accepted view based on hundreds of years of Western usage. Mm -hmm. um, And also the rules of publishing as set down in, I don't know what is used in England, but in the United States, we use the Chicago manual of style Mm. and you know, so it'd be very interesting to read the Chicago Manual of Style as a kind of decoder for uh, cultural meaning. Mm-hmm. hadn't really thought about that before. That the way we build the book actually is an expression of what we think the book is supposed to be and how it's supposed to operate. And when you talk about ending, you're right that the story ends, but the book still. The the feeling of the writer of the publisher and the builder of the book is you're not done yet. Mm. Um, you know we we have our our word to say now.
1: Absolutely. And, why don't you? Why not consider these other titles by the same author? You know, it's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. 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 And there's
0: a, the about the author, and then well, then yeah. of course there's all what we now call metadata, mm. which also conveys meaning. And of course, it's a commercial consideration. It's a communication about a thing. um, But that's pretty powerful Mm -hmm. information. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what do we think this thing is and how do we describe it? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like what we're trying to do with your book now. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get at what it means, and you're trying to express what it means without actually reading it or well i read it but without (laughs) you know the people who are hearing us talk about it are not reading it so we are trying to communicate in a meta way Mm. about your story Mm. that makes it real but it's really hard um you know and uh, there's not a uh, kind of uh, un, a clear understanding of what we should be doing.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, 100%. You know. Yeah. And indeed, novels themselves are very inefficient <laughs> modes of communication, I think. I mean, they're great for kind of thinking machines, but um, it's amazing how people read differently. Um, and that's one of the beautiful things. But yeah, I'm really interested. I was rereading um, The Price of Salt, which is mm-hmm. Carol yep. by any other name. Uh, yep. And in the paperback edition that you can buy in the UK. So you get to the end, this famous, beautiful, celebratory gay ending where maybe it's going to be okay. Maybe these two women are going to be able to have a relationship Um Uh, Which was famously um, revolutionary at the time, you know, transgressive. *Pulp pulp Fiction*, yeah, right. You weren't supposed
0: to do that. They were so you were supposed to be punished.
1: Hundred percent, yeah. You were supposed to be either become heterosexual again or die. Ideally, both. So, (laughs) so that was, you know, that's 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 something. So that that's a beautiful, triumphal thing, and then in the UK edition you turn and you get this afterword by Patricia Highsmith where she essentially kind of disavows this identity as a lesbian author so she sort of says oh well I've had lots of letters about this book everybody seems to think it's really important but I'm a bit cross about being typecast Um, I prefer to be thought of as a suspense author grumpy 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 you know and and that's how that book closes. So the mm-hmm. ending is not really the ending of the text. The ending is right. this kind of endless series of afterwards where people modify the text or try and do other stuff. And and that's so interesting, you know, because I think if I'd read that when I was 14, I might have felt quite vulnerable <laughs> about reading this kind <laughs> of slightly grumpy afterward by the author. Um, yeah. So it's that kind of thing that I'm getting really interested in what the author says around the text, Um and what, as you said, what publishers say around it, and all of that meta stuff, how that affects what we think of the book.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, mm. I, I think it's, I think it's an important. I, I, you know, it also relates to this notion of how our is our idea of reading changing, um, because and what's the nature of the book in a technologically driven world, and where, you know, are we? I, I find it is harder to concentrate. Um, you know, and read from beginning to end. I remember when I was young, I would sit down with a book. I wouldn't get up for hours. Mm-hmm. I would read it. I wouldn't drink water. I would even forget where I was. I, books were transportative. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that's actually a word, but they were. <laughs> you know, they were transportation machines. They would yeah. literally uh, remove you from your current reality and place you in another one. And yeah. which I think is still true. I you know, I have no doubt that that's what books do. But um, it's either being an adult or it's being a busy adult or it's being in a technological world that makes that um, ability to concentrate and leave your current reality long enough to inhabit the author's world Mm. that I think is really hard. And that does, it affects reading a book like yours. I actually think that that is a problem for the reader Mm -hmm. because you are requiring a certain amount of uh, attention mm-hmm. you know the because your book is in fact about domesticity family um persona mm-hmm. and um m- you know the modifications of expectations it's not a narrative of uh thriller you know it's not like a, a spy detective thriller western romance kind of book where there's a clear narrative um that you can ride Um, this book like many others you know it's you're not alone but it's a meditative and uh, concentrating um, uh, of of attention is required and that's harder for everyone therefore that probably makes it much more difficult for literary introspective reflective uh, fiction uh, in this world and you probably see that you know we don't we see it every day because you know it's shown in book sales or in uh what we in book you know in the book industry nobody really talks about is how many books are purchased and not finished mm. read but not completed mm. uh put down intending to read but never even picked up mm. um you know and and that's terrible
1: mm.
0: um to, it's terrible to know that but it's also um diffi- makes it more challenging for writers mm. Because you have to know that that's happening all the time.
1: Mm.
0: Not to make you feel worse than you already (laughs) do. (laughs) No, but it's so
1: interesting. And it's really, yeah, I think uh, when we just started talking, you said something about it being quite a careful novel, which is such a flattering way to think about it. And I I was aware of doing that meticulous work of just getting the characters from bit to bit of their life, often in quite close detail. And I was thinking, how is this going to have forward pull for people who – like me are addicted to their phone. <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm very much in that bracket of the candy crush people, you know. And so it is interesting to think what will happen to this kind of novel. And certainly because I I, I teach at a, at a university and so I teach lots of young people, I mean people of all ages, but you know, we have kind of had to let go of that rule where we stop the students having their phones in class. And increasingly, just that action of scrolling seems to calm people down. And it doesn't, but what I've also noticed is it doesn't mean they're not listening. It just means that they can't not also be doing something else. So what that does to attention span and what that means for literary fiction, I'm, I'm really interested in, but I wonder whether we'll see a return to the you know, the Victorian page-turning cliffhanger chapter endings, which is something that someone like Dan Brown is really, really yeah. good at. You know, he could yeah. be serialized beautifully in about 1865. But I just wonder whether as authors we're going to have to adapt to that and just deal with the fact that essentially we're writing serialized now, you know, and we're competing well, with I, Netflix. And right. yeah, and that's no, okay. And yeah.
0: I, think, I think there are some people in technology and publishing who have felt that that would be worthwhile pursuing. And that is the idea Mm -hmm. of serialized fiction for phones, for phone reading, Mm -hmm. for consumption. Um, It it doesn't mean you're not going to read the whole book. It just means you're going to absorb it a piece at a time. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is valid, but Mm -hmm. I also think this goes back to kind of your, what you're interested in studying. And that is the nature of narrative and the nature of storytelling um, and how they, you know, what you almost referred. I think what I, you said something like the novel is not a perfect Mm
1: -hmm. device
0: or it's an imperfect device. Mm -hmm. And it, it is really. And of course, novel comes from the 19th century, primarily Mm -hmm. that's when it was perfected. Mm -hmm. Um, And well, maybe not perfected, but that's when it kind of became uh, defined. Mm. Um, and, well, why should the novel be the same? And, of course, it isn't mm-hmm. 200 years later. But it, it could evolve in much more um, different ways than we've... And, of course, some writers have tried to do that. In fact, mm. I remember... In the 1980s, there was a woman in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I can't remember her name. was writing fiction on uh, floppy disks, mm. and it was kind of uh, multiple. Uh, you'd have to you get the book in a bunch of discs, mm. and you know, no one's seen a floppy disk in 30 years. But um, <laughs> there, you know, writers have experimented, you know, with this notion of uh, uh, using. St- Uh, technology and the tools at hand, the nature of reading being change, changeable to redefine what the story could be. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, look at video games. They are in fact uh, launching uh, storytelling Mm -hmm. uh, into the arms of in minds of millions of people Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that is completely different from a novel, but it's still novel like, yeah. Um and it's not always about action. Sometimes they are mm. extremely as your book is careful I like that word careful. Mm. Um you know uh um they're they're it's not always about uh action. Mm.
1: I agree and I think what we see is that the video games that do best or somehow people return to you. so i think of something like red dead redemption i don't know if you're a gamer at all but you know that nope. big game <laughs> set in the wild west which is an open world game so you can kind of wander about shooting people or rounding up cattle or whatever but there is a very very strong story thread running through and characters that you do bond with so that is a huge success and and yeah but i think commonly you know sometimes we see games where there just isn't a story and those tend to be the games that don't survive for 30 right. years you know right. everybody remembers the oregon trail which had a lovely very <laughs> simple story i am the oregon trail generation right. so you know which is a very narrow tranche of people born between i think 1979 and 1982 or something so it's very specific <laughs> but um yeah i mean i think what i'd love to see is is many many more novelists becoming involved in 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 video games yeah. and other games you know i think why resist it it's a billion dollar industry multi-billion dollar industry and yeah, if right. that's what storytelling looks like then why not why right. not do that write,
0: writers want their work to be read or yeah. it played if that's the yeah very
1: happy. You know, why not yeah. I'm not sure so, I would adapt this for a
0: video game, but... <laughs> no, I, no, probably not. Although you could fit it into one of those World War II games or that empire building game. Actually, that would be a really yeah. interesting thought is, you know, you have a lot of these games, board games and video games that are about empire building. True. Well, why not? Uh, what about the side stories about the people who are affected by the empire builders you know it's not just Mm. all about the leaders we know this from history that people's Mm. lives are lived in the context uh, created by these big events yeah why not video games inclusive of those lives Mm, (laughs) yes why
1: not What a beautiful (laughs) idea. Well, someone, I don't know if you know of this, there's a a massively multiplayer, I think they're called, online game called Ever Jane, which is... In which you are plunged into the world of a character in Jane Austen. So, yes, you know, you're. It's not like Warcraft where you're running around with orcs. You're right. desperately trying to curry favor with the manservant <laughs> of Lady So and So. You know, which is a lovely thing, isn't it? And and it's a way of thinking about the social stakes of that kind of world. Yeah, and introducing people yeah. who might not think about that. I think sadly it's defunct now, but um, I hope someone revives it. Mm.
0: That's a great idea. Mm. Well, let me ask you one more question, and that is to return to the original conversation. Um, you know, now that you've done this book and I have not read your first book, Petite Morte, Mm -hmm. but I would like to read it now. But what, what do you have a book that you're working on now? Do you have something that you're planning?
1: I do, yes. So I've developed a very tedious obsession with um, decorated caves, so cave paintings. Um, Who knows why these things spring up? But it does parallel Mm -hmm. this interest in um, writing the remote past, so how we conceive of the past that was pre-alphabetic, where we don't really have very much data. Um, So I'm writing something that is tentatively set in a Neanderthal community um, in the south of France, and talk about writing yourself into a corner I mean I'm only a, a little bit into it and I'm already tearing my hair out but sometimes those technical challenges are what you need to really do something interesting so yeah ask me in about 10 years it seems to take me yeah. about 10 years per book at the moment so yeah well that one, that <laughs>
0: one that sounds like a an amazingly complex challenge <sighs> uh, but you know frees you to be uh, pretty creative because there's no one who can tell you yeah. no one's gonna say well that's not what they did.
1: No, absolutely. The Neanderthals are not going to come out and tell me off. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah you. Can, yeah. Oh,
0: I like. I love the idea of interpolating story from, uh, de- you know, messages left behind, mm. uh, because we don't know what they were really intending. Um, you know,
1: we definitely don't. But what we're starting to see, interestingly, I think, is that they. You know, we feel like um, Homo sapiens has. Y- the rights over art making capabilities. And actually what we're starting to see is we're finding mm-hmm. beads, we're finding um, not exactly paintings, not necessarily figurative art, but kind of smears of what is clearly paint on caves, which must be Neanderthal community. So this whole idea that we as a species are so special is, is possibly about to fall by the wayside. And that's really interesting, I think, you know? Yeah. Um, so maybe there's something there. Mm.
0: Well, I, I will be looking forward to reading it.
1: <laughs> thank you so when it, much. When you're ready. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, well, th- thank you, Beatrice. It's been real. this was really fun. I enjoyed mm. talking to you. And uh, I'm going to recommend everyone listening to read all of you, every single one by Beatrice Hitchman. It's a really lovely novel. And um, I hope our conversation will help lead you to it. So, thank you.
1: Thank you so much, David. <laughs>